And I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning with me to the book of Acts once again. Acts chapter 6 this morning. We'll read the first seven verses there. That's page 1700. 1700 in your pew Bibles. Uh, The book of Acts isn't too hard to find if you can find the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Acts is right after that. And we've uh, engaged in a series on the book of Acts. And we're uh, jumping around just a little bit, so I hope we're not uh, giving anyone too much whiplash. But this morning I wanted to look at Acts chapter 6 as I think it applies uh, particularly to leadership in the church. And that's why we're looking at, uh, at this chapter. This morning we may take a step back in, uh, in weeks to come. Also, just to comment on this text, I think um, many people see in this text the institution of the office of, of deacon. And the reason for that is the Greek word diakonia, from which we get our word deacon, comes up in this text quite frequently. But that word, essentially in the Greek, means something, it doesn't mean necessarily the office of deacon, especially at this time in the history of the church. As you know, the the church is just beginning to grow. It's in Jerusalem. And um, there is no real office of deacon at this point, but there are different ministries and services in the church, and that's how this word is used in this text. And there are two ministries in particular that that this text refers to this morning. The first is the ministry or the service of the word. And we've always seen that as the preaching, the proclamation of the word of God. The other ministry that's mentioned here is the service of, of, of tables or the distribution of food within the community. We're going to talk more about that um, this morning, but really this isn't, uh, this isn't the inauguration of the office of deacon itself, but it is sort of laying the groundwork for the different offices that we find in the church. So with that said, let's, uh, let's look at Acts chapter 6 and... Um, is God's word to us. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of, of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. And there you find that, that word diakonia. To neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I encourage you to keep your Bibles open today so you can sort of refer to the text this morning. 
Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, you can ask just about any, uh, any preacher what's the most difficult part of a sermon uh, to actually preach, and they will tell you that it's the application part of the sermon. It's that part of the sermon where you, you take the text and the truth that it proclaims and you begin to apply it to all of our lives, okay? Um, texts like, uh, love your neighbor, well, that's pretty easy to hear, right? Um, even love your enemies, that's pretty easy to hear too. But when you begin to apply those texts, it gets a little more difficult. Things get a little stickier in the church, right? When you begin to name, well, who are my neighbors and who are my enemies? And then the pastor is telling us we have to love those people in particular, that's when things don't go quite as smoothly. One famous preacher kind of put it this way. He said, he said, when you're explaining the text and you're expounding on the text, people are sort of nodding their heads and saying, preach it, preacher, preach it, preacher. And then you begin to apply the text and they say, you're not preaching anymore, preacher. Now you're meddling. Now you're meddling. And that's sort of what this text is all about. It's about Jesus beginning to meddle in our lives. Most of us, friends, are willing to profess that Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens, and there he sits on the throne of God. At the same time, many of us would just as soon be content to leave him there. Right? We don't need him necessarily meddling in our lives. But meddle he does. Meddle he does. And he often does it through the leaders or the office bearers of his church. Through people just like these people that we have sitting up here in front today. There's always this task of taking the word of God, the truths of God, and then applying them to our lives, that's, that's their role. Let's back up and, uh, and set the stage um, just a bit here this morning. What is it that we've seen so far in the book of Acts? Let me just try and summarize that very quickly. Jesus has gone up, right? Jesus has gone up into the heavens. He is the king, not just over one region, not just over one country, not just over Israel, but over all the earth. That's why his throne is in the heavens. And as king, he has poured out his Holy Spirit on his disciples, and he has given them power and authority to witness to this fact that Jesus is king, that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive that God has vindicated him, that he has rolled away the reproach of Egypt against his name, and he has instead given him the name that is above every name. He has all authority. And from his throne in the heavens and through his Holy Spirit-empowered witness of, of his disciples, Jesus is gathering people from all of the nations and he's bringing them into a new community, into this Eden-like community that we talked about last week where people will actually love each other as we love ourselves. Remember what we saw last week 
from chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and in mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. That community can only be the result of the work of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us great power to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, and then he gives us great grace to live together in this deep community, this deep community with each other. And that deep community, in turn, testifies to the real authority of this Jesus Christ who sits on the throne. Okay? It's sort of like this unending loop. Jesus has authority. He sends his witnesses out. He gathers his community in. And that community lives in such incredible love and unity that they bear witness to the fact that Jesus really is Lord of heaven and earth. Now we come to Acts chapter 6. Let's sort of check out what's going on here and why it is that new leadership needs to be appointed in the church. Okay? First, let's, let's take a big picture look and then, then we'll look at one detail and then we'll pretty, be, pretty much be done. The big picture look, verse 1, first line. The number of disciples was increasing. The number of disciples was increasing. And that's exactly what we would expect, right? This is what's been happening in these early churches of Acts. As the gospel is being proclaimed, more and more people are coming to belief, being gathered into the church. The church is increasing. The disciples are still witnessing to Jesus. He is still pulling people in. It's the reversal of Babel that we talked about. It's the opposite of the scattering. The church is growing and being gathered in. No big surprise there. But the very next line is a bit of a shocker. The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. Here we see the problem. Here we see a problem, but in this problem we see the problem, and the problem is sin. Sin in the church. And friends, this is something we all have to understand, and especially as office bearers we have to understand, that sin is always present in the church, and it will be until Jesus Christ's return. That's just the way that it is. It's just the way that it is. But let's talk about that just a little bit more. Even in this church, with the fullness of the Spirit, okay, things go wrong. In other words, Acts is not a romanticized picture of the church. It doesn't give a romanticized picture of the church. It's a very real picture. And let's, let's look what's going on here. Um, if you think back to last week, chapter 4, verse 34, it said this. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them 
brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Distributed to anyone. But apparently it wasn't. Not to everyone. Because the Grecian Jews were saying, hey, our widows aren't being taken care of like the rest of the widows. Something's wrong here. They were feeling left out. And what we are seeing here is that there is a divide growing in the church. There is a party spirit here. And that divide just happens to fall along linguistic and cultural lines. In other words, what we're seeing here is Babel making its way, finding its way back into the church. Who are these Hebraic and Grecian Jews? Okay? Well, the Hebraic Jews were from Palestine. They'd grown up in the land. They probably grew up in Jerusalem. They went to the same schools. They shopped in the same, same shops for their groceries. Their, their kids all played Little League together. They spoke the same language, probably Aramaic. In other words, they had very tight human ties, worldly ties, shared experiences that bound them together, sort of made them feel like the insiders. Okay? Who were the Grecian Jews? They were Greek-speaking Jews. They'd grown up outside of Palestine. Okay? Probably came back to Jerusalem for the, for the festivals, for Pentecost. Oftentimes they're referred to as Hellenists. Okay? They grew up in different places. They learned different traditions. They were probably a little more... Um, a little more worldly than the Jews from Jerusalem. The point is, they were different. They were strangers. They were outsiders. And here, the Grecian Jews are making allegations of the inequitable distribution of the food. All right? Your kids are getting chocolate milk at recess. There's nothing left but white by the time our kids get there. Things aren't fair, right? And so we see that the divisions of Babel, like I said, are creeping back into the church. And friends, that's a problem. That's a problem. If Jesus really is Lord of all, then, then we can't live like he's the mayor of Jerusalem. I mean, did he really come to restore the kingdom to Israel? Or did he come to inaugurate a much greater kingdom? A much more expansive kingdom? A kingdom that, that includes the entire world, all the nations of the world? Friends, if he really is ruler in the heavens, ruler over all, then why is it so often that we in the church begin to treat him like, well, he's just our ruler of our little group and the rest of you people sort of have to fend for yourselves? Why are Holy Spirit leaders, Holy Spirit-filled leaders needed in the church? 
Because sin always threatens to separate Jesus from his church. Sin always threatens to separate Jesus from his church, to leave Jesus somewhere up there in the clouds while we live independently here on the earth, independent from him, that is. Sin always tries to do that. It separates the word and the truth of the word from its application. And this is just one example of that truth. And therefore, we need leaders in the church to stand up and to say, no, you cannot separate the word from its application. You cannot do that. And that's what the leaders here in our text do. For one, they acknowledge the problem, and then they work to resolve it. They say, hey, there is a ministry of the word, the ministry that's got to be proclaimed, and it will be proclaimed. We're not going to stop proclaiming the word, and so we're going to set aside some of us to do that task, okay, to engage specifically in that task. But what they say then is there is another ministry in the church that is just as important. It can't be done away with. It must not be hindered. And that is we need people in the church who make sure that the word that we're proclaiming is actually lived out in this place, that it's applied to our lives. This is just as necessary. And so they commissioned leaders to do that, to do that part of it. And look who it is that they commission. Verse 3. The apostles say, choose seven from among you. Among you. Think of that little word, among. What they're saying is choose seven people. Seven people that you rub shoulders with every day. And that you will continue to rub shoulders with every day. Seven people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, in other words, who understand the deep meaning of God's truth, of God's word, and also seven people who are filled with the spirit of wisdom. In other words, they know how to apply that word to real life. These people will stand among you just like they always have, and they will make sure that we are taking the truths of God And applying them. That's their task. To put it in very practical terms, we need in our office bears real idealists. Real idealists. Or you could say ideal realists. I'm not sure how to put that. But think about it, right? When the Grecian Jews came with their complaint, It would have been really easy for the disciples or the apostles to say, well, hey, you know, this whole idea of making sure that everybody's taken care of equally, that's kind of of idealistic. I mean, let's get practical here. The church is growing fast, right? There's a lot of people coming in. It's really hard to get to know everyone on a personal basis. It's, it's hard to know, you know, who's got the money and who doesn't, who needs food, who doesn't need food. It would have been really easy for the apostles to say, hey, uh, we're doing the best that we can, and, you know, if somebody doesn't get enough, uh, that's just kind of the way it is. They don't do that. They acknowledge right away, 
this is a serious problem. They do not water down the gospel. They do not make it something less than the ideal that it is. Rather, they say this ideal has to become reality. The ideal is that Jesus wants all of his people taken care of. That's what has to happen among us. And so they come up with a plan and they get to work. I'm sure that as we read through that charge to you this morning for what it means to be an elder and a deacon, at least if you're all at all like me, you're probably thinking, that's kind of idealistic. I mean, this idea that I would be a, um, a friend and a Christ-like example to the children. I mean, there's a lot of children in this church. And and to be a prophetic critic of waste and injustice and the selfishness in our society, I mean, wow, that's a big calling. It would be easy to say, well, that's the ideal, and we're sort of aiming for something less, right? We'd be content just to do half of that. We're expected to be idealists. There's a reason for those ideals. Jesus isn't saying, you know, I want my community just to be like the rest of the world. No. He's saying, my community, my people, are going to be more. They're going to be different. They're going to live out the values of my kingdom. We need people like you to stand among us and make those ideals real. Don't water down the gospel. That's kind of the big picture of being an office bearer, but there's, an also, there's also a, a little detail here that we just have to recognize. There's another reference to sin here in the church that we don't always pick up on, and that's the manner in which the problem is presented to the apostles. Okay? It's first of all a problem that the food isn't being distributed. There's a second problem, and that is how the man or the manner in which the problem is brought to the apostles. The text says here that the Grecian Jews complained. Big deal. But the word that Luke uses here in the Greek is the word for murmur. Okay? The people were murmuring. Now, murmur is, is one of those great English words. I think we call it onomatopoeia, right? It's when the sound of the word expresses the meaning of the word, right? And you can just sort of hear that. Murmur, 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 murmur. There's a lot of murmuring going on, right? And when people murmur, you don't really even understand what's being said. You just know it's kind of negative, right? It's not very positive. Murmuring is a kind of ill-tempered, festering dissatisfaction that prefers grumbling and poisonous speech to just proper confrontation and resolution. Murmur. We want to murmur. 
That word comes straight out of the Old Testament. Guess where it comes from? The wilderness wanderings. Okay? God brought his people out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea into the freedom of the desert, the wilderness, and that's when the murmuring began. Right? They murmured against Moses. They murmured against God. They said, why did God bring us out here? Why didn't he just leave us in Egypt? Back in Egypt, we had, we had plenty of food and water. We sat around pots of meat. And now here we are in the wilderness, and we've got no food. We've got lousy water. Why did God ever bring us out here? Murmur, 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 murmur. There's a reason Luke uses that word here. What do murmurers do? They take a very real problem and they forget about all that is good and holy in the church and they assess blame. And it's always blame on somebody else and it's usually blame against the leaders of God's people. That you just don't get it, you're not doing it right, you've got to do it differently and so on and so forth. What murmurers don't do is they don't take any responsibility for the problem themselves. They don't recognize all that is good in the church, all that Christ is doing in the church. They don't confront the issue in a positive manner. They don't say, let's get together and pray about this and trust that Jesus will lead us through it. Now, leaders, I want you to hear just two things here, okay? I wish it weren't true, but until Christ returns, there are going to be murmurers in the church, even in this one. In fact, murmuring seems to be part of our sinful nature, all right? It's in all of us. And that's why even this morning in our form for ordination, we had this little piece, right? It's called Charge to the Congregation. What it initially means is stop murmuring, don't murmur. There are positive ways to deal with things. Let's do things more positively. Support the leaders of the church. Pray for them. Help them. Respect them. It's not easy. The second thing I want you to hear about this is that you cannot be a leader in the church and also be a murmurer. Those two things do not go together. In fact, there is a reason why you were chosen for this task, and that is because the people in this congregation believe that you are not murmurers. Okay? Our text um, says this, Brothers, choose seven from among you who are known. And that little word known just doesn't say it all, because what it means is by being known, you are people of good reputation. In other words, the word here in Greek is, is about testimony and witness. There is good testimony about you that you are people of good repute, that you are not murmurers, in other words, but rather you are someone who knows the word of God, who loves the church of God, and knows how to apply the truths of God in a loving, gentle way among us. You don't brush problems under the rug. You confront them. 
you know that Jesus is alive and still the true Lord of his church, and so when we have problems, we ask him to lead us through them and trust that he will. Let's put murmuring behind us. And when we do, and when we take the truths of God and live them out, what's the result? That's verse 7, the last verse we read today. What does it say? The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. In other words, the word of truth that Jesus is Lord continued to be proclaimed. People continued to come in and be gathered in by our Savior into his church. And so what was happening in the beginning is happening again in the end. But there's more here. What about the problem, right? What about the problem that the word is not being applied? Was anything done about that? Was there any result? Well, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. What does that have to do with anything? Who cares about the priests? Is it just sort of another feather in our hat? The priests were coming too. Well, think about this. Some of you probably remember that it was the priests in the Old Testament who were given the duty of distributing resources to the poor. In other words, the community would come with their offerings and their gifts, and it was up to the priests to take those and distribute them to the rest of the community who had need. And so it could be that the Jewish priests who saw the church's work with the poor and saw that that work even happened across cultural lines, it could be that they were so blown away by the love within this community that actually embodied the caring priestly heart of God that they thought, this is a community we've got to be a part of. And this Jesus that they knew, all of a sudden, their minds were expanded to see that, wow, his reign extends far, much farther than we could have ever imagined. We've got to be a part of this. That's our job as office bearers. To make the reign of Jesus so real right here on the earth that people come to believe and they want to be a part of what Jesus has going. Let's bow together in prayer. Jesus, you are Lord and you are King of your church. Give us the grace to express your rule and your reign in very real and practical ways that honestly interpret who you are and what your word is calling us to. This is our prayer for this congregation and for all who are called to be office bearers within it. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.